Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning. Last episode, we had the, the delight of having Paul Burberry on the show. And for a brief time in there, we, we spoke a bit about DiSync EDM, just a little tangent off of Wire EDM. And uh, for whatever reason, that, that got my, my gears spinning. It led me to, to realize that it is very probable that that, that is how Grubel Forzi has achieved those phenomenally sharp corners on, on the engraving on their watch movements and, and dials. This is a combination. I, I would imagine if, if I were to do it using that technology, um, I, would, I would CNC out my original or, or preliminary die, so to speak, mm-hmm. sink that in to a piece of steel, and then go in with the, the CNC mill again and take off all the corners I, I couldn't get to properly with the, the radiuses on my tooling, and then use that to, to sink the, the final impression, or if that's not the impression I, I wanted, sink that into a tool that is then used to do the, the final impression, but going through a, a multi-step process like that uh, in order to get the, those really sharp interior and exterior angles combined. I don't know what Grubel Forzi is doing for their work, but you can certainly do some incredible detailed, sharp-cornered work with a Dyson KDM. Uh, again, we, we spoke last episode about Mike Walker, a knife maker down in Taos, New Mexico, does some unbelievable work. And uh, I spoke about his wire EDM work where he was creating interlocking dovetail sort of zipper patterns uh, with the wire EDM out of two different materials two different metals and then and then uh, putting them together. And that is impressive what he was doing with it, but he's also done some very impressive Dyson EDM work as well on his knives where he has gone off and sunk, uh, you know, sharp cornered patterns into uh, the scales of his knives and things like that and then done inlay in there. Uh, also, uh, Rich Littleston, uh, we've spoken about many, 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 many episodes ago. He's a pen maker that I know out of uh, Denver, Colorado. And again, he's done similar things where he's done silver tubed pens where he's used a Dyson EDM to cut very sharp cornered patterns into the silver and then gone and inlaid mother of pearl into those patterns. And that mother of pearl was cut out on his pantograph. And so he could then, you know, match it up perfectly, get the exact pattern that he wanted from the pantograph and then inlay the mother of pearl into the tube of the, the pen, which he has cut perfectly using the Dyson EDM. Mm. And then he just goes off and, and uh, sands the mother of pearl to the, the correct um, radius so that it, it is all smooth and perfect and looks great. There are some people doing some really amazing things with EDM technology of all kinds. And mm. yeah, it, it would not surprise me at all. I'm sure that the guys at Grubel Forzi are aware of this technology, and it's very possible that's how they're, they're going about doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we had first chatted about this all the way back in episode 35, yeah. which was uh, an SIHH episode. And uh, it's just uh, amazing to me how, how things like this just sort of background <laughs> thread for yeah. you know months, years, and then all of a sudden uh, you know, the pieces, pieces click together and you realize, oh, that, that's how you could do that. And with so many of these technologies, it really comes down to how much time and effort you want to put into doing them. Something like this, uh, you know, any kind of sinker technology like that, 
is not going to be something you're going to do in mass production. Rolex is not going to just start using Dyson EDM work for manufacturing their cases, for instance. You know, when you're, you're making somewhere around a million pieces a year, you can't afford to, you know, to do that kind of work. They probably use Dyson EDM work for doing the either the, the dies or the stamps for some of their presses. You know, that's that's a very common way of, of making dives for very large presses, which, which is what they're using for some of their, their case making. So it wouldn't surprise me at all if they are using the technology, but they're not going to be using it straight into their cases. Grubel 4Z, they're not making anywhere near a million pieces a mm-hmm. year. And so you can, get, you can then start using some of these technologies in ways which is just impractical at, at volume. It, it opens up some possibilities that you just don't have any any other way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it actually got me thinking a little bit there too. If they're if they're going to go to the extent of of using a, a Dyson EDM to to put this engraving into the top of the bridge, and some of these bridges, it's just it's just all engraving. And actually, it's not engraving is almost the wrong word. It's a, it's a reverse engraving where all the the numbers and the letters are raised away mm. from the metal. So you're not actually cutting the the numbers into the metal. You're actually cutting out all the metal around them yeah. and, and going down into the metal. But if you're going to go to the extent of, of doing that and, and you have this high level of polish on your, your sink already, uh, you could actually have all of your chamfers pre-done mm. and you could die-sync your, your chamfers and your, your engraving and all this in, in just one fell swoop. Yeah, it, it opens up some, some interesting possibilities. In an ideal world, I would have both a wire EDM and a die-sync EDM in my studio right now so that I could sit there and experiment with it. It's not that, you know, I wouldn't be able to put it to enough use to be able to justify buying a new one. Buying a used one, though, maybe. It's it's certainly in that realm of, you know, being able to to justify the cost of it for even the small amount of work that it would do. Everything from blanking out parts to cutting pattern bars to, you know, sinking, sinking cool patterns into watch cases or bridges or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. There's certainly some some possibilities there. As Paul said, you can, um, you know, obviously cut out all of your bridges out of a big sheet of metal and, and come back the next day and it's all there. Or if you want to, you can use a very thick piece of metal, say something that's five or six inches thick, and cut out a bridge from that five or six, you know, five-inch piece of metal and then come and take it the next day and just start slicing off all of your parts, right? And you can you can slice off the parts so that they're exactly the correct thickness. And now in that one pass, you've done the profile of your complex part. And then you can sit there and you can slice off your, you know, 100, 200 parts or whatever it is that you can get out of that five-inch piece of metal. There there are some interesting things that you can do with it if you if you want to play around with it and and sort of learn how to leverage the technology to do, you know, to do what it does. Yeah, slice bread for for watch. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, you can you can do, you know, this slice slice it to whatever thickness you want. And it's like, ah, oh, this you know, this bridge needs to be a little bit thicker than that one, or a little bit thinner. <laughs> eh, just slice it the way that it goes. You mentioned Rich Littleston using a, a pantograph there to carve out the mother of pearl that mm-hmm. he was inlaying into the dicing EDM work that he was doing uh, for his pens. You sent along a, a link recently for another interesting application of using a, a pantograph. As we've been discussing case making, I've been thinking about ways of being able to form those cases and shape them and, and do the things that I need to do. 
and obviously CNC machining is is an obvious way of doing some of it. Uh, but I don't really have a great setup for CNC machining 316L stainless steel, uh, which is probably what my first cases are going to be made out of. And so I've been looking at alternatives, ways that I can get around needing that. And there are there are some some options that we we're going to talk a bit about uh, that allow you to, you know, to do things like forming the forming the lugs and cutting the the shapes in between those lugs. But some of them are better than others, and some of them are not ideal. One of the things that has come across my radar, and, and something that I've thought about a couple of times in the past, is using a panograph for cutting out the profile of the case. And um, I saw a uh, an Instagram post by DM Tiffany Timepieces, and he had a great post where he was showing how he uses um, his lathe to cut the profile of the case in a complete circle. And then after he's done cutting all of the circular features on it, he then takes that part over to his panograph and he's actually cutting out all of the lugs and everything like that. Um, the space between the lugs, getting that all that shape right, taking away the material from the side of the case where he doesn't actually want the lug, and um, and he's got a great post on on Instagram which we'll link to, and showing exactly how he goes about doing that. And I thought it was a perfect example of how you can use a panograph, you know, pre CNC technology to be able to create an accurate and and good looking watch case uh, without needing complex machinery to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and sort of give some perspective to just uh, how how low budget or uh, how rudimentary that this can be. The uh, the blank or, or the, yeah. the overscale model that he was using to carve out the case using the pantograph was all constructed of wood. So you can just yeah. literally just take a piece of wood to, to a bandsaw or to a scroll saw, get the form that you want dialed in. You know, take a bit of sandpaper to it to take off those those rough edges so mm-hmm. that it doesn't get picked up by the the feeler that you're using with the pantograph. And then you just transfer that that entire shape over to a block of steel. Yeah, and I think he was using uh, resin to um, impregnating the edges of it with resin in order to make it a bit harder so that it can wear and last a little bit longer. And I think he ended up doing a five to one uh, scale model of it. So you know, it's not a not a massive model. It's not um, you know, it's not something huge, but it's just enough that he can not worry about a lot of the inconsistencies that it's going to get because even if you're if you're going to cut that that original model by hand uh you are going to have some you know obviously some uh, little inconsistencies in it and as you say you know you can take a file you can take some sandpaper and clean it up but it only matters so much if you've got a very small flaw in that pattern at five times size when the pantograph reduces it down it's reducing those errors down as well. And so the the errors are meaningless when you reduce them down. They're things that you're going to have to clean up anyways, because you're still going to have tooling marks from the panograph, right? It's still a spinning cutter. It's operating very, very much like a mill is where it's got a spinning cutter and it's, and you're milling out the, you know, that space. And so you've, you're going to have to clean up those tool marks anyways. All the little flaws that you're going to get in the, you know, in the the part after that five to one reduction, they're meaningless, right? You're going to have to clean them up anyway. So it's, it's actually a very effective way of doing it. Again, you, if you don't, you don't make a million watches like this, but making 10, 25, 50 watches a year, this is a very, very plausible way of doing it. 
people are giving away pantographs these days because nobody wants them in the shop, right? You can buy, uh, you know, a Haas CNC mill for your your shop for, you know, thirty forty thousand dollars, and it can be running twenty hours a day, making you money. You don't, you know, you're not going to use that space to have a couple of pantographs where you have to have a skilled operator standing there operating it manually to be able to do that work. Uh, if you, you know, any work that you would have done with a pantograph, you're going to do with a CNC mill now. But for people like me, people like, um, you know, DM Tiffany timepieces, we're not going to, you know, we can't justify having tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of CNC equipment around to begin with. And so this is a plausible way for us to do that mass production and get the, the, the shapes that we want, which are relatively complex and, and difficult to do well by hand. Yeah, the most challenging part of making a watch case, uh, or one of, there, there are a lot of challenging things and intolerances that you absolutely have to get right, particularly yeah. if you're going to make a, a case that's watertight. Uh, but one of the more challenging aspects to machine is that area between the lugs. And it is because sure. of those those corners. I mean, you are, like the one downside to using a, a process like this is how small can you, you get that radius in that corner. Yes. And, and you're going to be having to, to use a, a fairly tiny cutter to get that to an, an acceptable range for what we're accustomed to seeing mm-hmm. in watch cases. And you're certainly not going to want to to cut out the, the entire case using that, that size of a cutter because you're going to either go through a large <laughs> number of cutters or it's just, frankly, it's going to take you forever to do. You don't want to use a tiny end mill like that to cut out the entire space that you need to cut out. However, one of the advantages with a pantograph is that you can make the, you can first off easily switch out cutters so that you can go from a larger, let's say a quarter inch cutter down to a one eighth cutter down to, you know, whatever, a 10 thou cutter. And what you do is you size the stylus on, you know, that you're using to trace the model so that it's the same ratio larger as the, the, the pattern is. So if you're using a quarter inch cutter, then you go off and, and use a one and a quarter. If you're going to five to one. Exactly. If it's a five to one, it's five times larger. Right. And then you go down to the one eighth, um, you know, the one eighth size. Well, now you're going to make one, uh, make a stylus that's five times that particular, you know, that particular cutter. You go down to a 10 thou cutter. Again, the same thing. And every time you, you go down, you've, you know, you don't have to mill out that entire area, right? One of the nice things with this is that you can see exactly the, the areas that you need to mill out. You can gently go and, and sort of approach them. And, and um, not only are you getting that five to one reduction in the pattern, but all of that motion that you're doing is all being reduced as well, and you're getting the mechanical advantage. So it's it's nice and rigid as you're moving it, and so it's it actually is quite effective. You know, you can go down and scale in size down to the size of cutter that you need to then get that particular uh, inside corner radius. Because as you say, that is a complex shape that you're getting. You've go, you're going from the flat side of the lug to the curved side of the of the case. And that's that's a challenging transition to make. Mm-hmm. And frankly, I don't know that you'd really want to have it a sharp corner in there anyways, in a lot of cases, because depending on how you've you've made that, you could end up with weird stresses in there. Uh, with one of the designs that I'm using, it's not too bad because I'm soldering those lugs in place. And so I, I don't have the weird 
stresses in there um, that you would get if you were trying to machine a, you know, machine it out of a solid block of metal. Uh, but in a lot of cases, like in this, where you've got a single piece of metal, you do want to be careful about making that, that too sharp a corner. Otherwise, you could run into problems with it. You mentioned Rolex earlier and how they, they press out the mm-hmm. the ingots or the, the blanks for, for their cases. And uh, they do indeed press those out. They, they have a, a tool and die set up mm-hmm. for that. Uh, but even though they are using that sort of setup and they could have the, the sharpest corners they wanted, they do indeed leave a bit of a, a radius there in transition. Yep. And uh, the one part of that is to account for those, those stress factors. Mm-hmm. And the other part, too, is your piece that's going to be meshing in there. You don't want that to have sharp corners sure. on it either. So you want that to be able to have a, a roundedness to those corners. And it's very slight, but you, you still want that, that little bit of, of rounding so that that's not going to get caught on a shirt sleeve or you know a piece of clothing exactly. or dig into someone's arm. And that's something that in we'll we'll talk a little bit more about um, you know the progress that we're making on our own watch. But this is something that I've thought about for the watch case that we're looking at making for Project Minotaur watches using a panograph for doing this kind of work. And it's one of the options that we have for for doing this kind of this kind of thing. Now, given your experience using the panograph, just how how tight of a radius do you think you you could actually? Get get in there. Like how, how small of a, an end mill do you, you think you could? Well, find? I can buy end mills that are. Let's see here. What's the smallest end mill that I've had? Five thou diameter. Now that might not work very well in stainless steel. I was going to say it, it's. Yeah, we'll have to try it out. Yeah, we can we can give it a try. Mm-hmm. I, I, the reality is that how I mean how small of a radius do you really need in there? Right, like a one mil cutter. That's going to give you a half mil radius in there. That's still a pretty tight radius in there. And a one mil cutter is totally reasonable like that. A one mil end mill is still a, a very reasonable thing and it's going to be reasonably sturdy. Again, you're not going to hog out a huge amount of material with it, but we can start with a larger end mill and then work our way down to that and you know eventually go to a two mil end mill and then go to a one mil end mill and that gives you that half mil radius in there. So yeah, I think the and I think that a half mil radius is probably going to look quite good. And as you mentioned, like another way to approach this challenging machining task and it is challenging because you do have that that arc and, and that flat edge if it was mm-hmm. flat edge to flat edge it's, it's oh, trivial it's easy yeah, yeah it's it, trivial got to no, do. no yeah. issue at all but it's that that arc introduces some issues uh, but you can get specialized cutters for, mm-hmm. for this sort of task or you know as we've alluded to you could, you could use a wire edm sure you could take the sliced bread approach and actually have a, a five inch chunk of steel that you've wire edm'd to the, have the exact lug profile that, that you want to have and then and slice off the bits and do the rest on, on a lathe. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are, are specialized cutters that are designed specifically for this task. So you can actually get a cutter made out of tungsten carbide that will, will go in and its sole purpose in life is, is to cut out that space be- between the lugs. Yeah, there are custom tooling companies out there. One of the ones that we've seen an example of was from AB Tool. Uh, they're out on the west coast of the U.S., I think. And they made this custom end mill for hogging out the material in the in between the lugs and getting that that case profile exactly where it needs to be. And you know, looking at the looking at the size of this cutter and the big chunk of carbide that's there, I can tell you, having purchased a lot of carbide, that that is not a cheap cutter. <laughs> just just in the 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 amount of carbide that's there, it's it's not inexpensive. And then also the crazy geometry that had to be mm-hmm. machined into that that is not going to be an inexpensive cutter and the other disadvantage of this is you know while this is great again if you're going to be producing 
thousands of cases. The big disadvantage with this is that you're then stuck with that exact profile. You don't have a choice in what your profile is going to be unless you want to spend hundreds of dollars on another one. So in my case, I'm working on a 42 mil case and a 38 millimeter case for my my first watch. If I wanted to use something like this, I would have to have two cutters made for that. If at some point I decide, hey, let's make a 36 mil case, now I have to shell out for another another end mill. The advantage of something like the Panagraph is that I don't have to do that. It, it All I need to do is produce a new template to work from. That's a couple of dollars in material. In my case, I can use Rich's big CNC router to, to cut it out. And I've got myself a perfectly serviceable template for a few dollars. And yes, it's it's a little bit more time consuming and a little bit more labor intensive to actually cut out the case. It means that I don't have to spend hundreds of dollars on a custom cutter to be able to do it. But this is certainly a great advantage if you're if you're trying to produce, you know, let's say hundreds or thousands of cases a year, which are going to be the same or have that same profile, then this is totally a plausible way of doing it. It would certainly be a good investment if you're trying to do that. Mm-hmm. And the approach that you are taking with these cases as well, at least as far as I understand the, the latest prototype, you don't even need to bother with the pantograph. Yeah. Because you're actually doing the, the lungs as a completely separate piece. Then you're yes. able to solder those in because these cases are being made from precious metals like silver and, and mm-hmm. palladium. Yeah. Yeah. In my case, I, I've got, I've, I've been able to avoid some of these problems. However, I do also want to be able to make some of these cases out of 316L. I want to be able to make them out of stainless Damascus. You know, I, I want to have the option to machine them out of harder materials, which are not something I can cast easily. I, we've talked about the fact that I can get 316L cast for me into the lug shape that I want, or maybe even the entire case shape that I want, but I can't get Damascus done like that. So Chris Plouffe is doing really great stainless steel Damascus. He can get me the blanks that I need in terms of the sheet material, which I can cut out, but I can't cast that. You know, you're not going to get a, a Damascus pattern out of a out of a cast material. So there are there are limits to what you can do with some of this. In the other techniques that I've been I've been trying to apply to the the case design. And so every time you make a change, whether it's a material change or whether it's a shape change or, or a process change, available tooling, you've got limitations that you have to work with. And those restrictions are, are what makes this job interesting, right? You have to sort of work around them and, and figure out how is this going to work? How am I going to effectively machine this? And something that will work fine for, you know, a 316 case, straight 316, I can... I can buy a rod, you know, a two and a half inch diameter rod of 316 steel and just start turning parts off of it. I can't do that with, you know, with Damascus steel. I'm going to get a, a different, very different raw material from from Chris than, than I can get from, you know, McMaster Carr with the, you know, with a, a bar of, of stainless. And the same thing, I'm, I can't buy a two and a half inch diameter bar of palladium 500, right? Even if I could, I couldn't, I couldn't afford it, <laughs> right? I'd be looking at hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of metal sitting there, right? So I have to take a different approach mm-hmm. when I use that particular material. That's, you know, that's sort of what makes this job interesting. It, uh, all of these things provide little challenges and, and you have to 
figure out what the best way is of approaching certain things. And on the complete opposite end of the spectrum from CNC and, and wire EDM, you can just go full out old school and use something like the, the Bühler case-making lay that we chatted about with Christian Lass <laughs> a few months back. We are very pleased to to say that Christian has unveiled the, the final prototype uh, that he was busy in uh, the throes of working on back when we, we chatted to him. Yeah, he, he revealed that on Instagram a couple of days ago, and it looked great. The case is interesting, and, and again, he's he's using these uh, these old-school case-making lathes, which uh, take advantage of cam technology and multi-tool setups using um, a rotary tool setup on the, the tailstock. And uh, they're fascinating machines. And again, this, these are sort of the industrialization pre-CNC for making uh, large numbers of cases. And this case that he's got, is it looks great. The watch looks great. And, of course, a big part of that is the incredible engraving that um, that Hani, his wife, has done on the dial and on the case and on the um, the movement. Uh, she's done a spectacular job of, of hand engraving the lettering and the numbers that are on there. Great to see this this watch at a stage where he can he's willing to show it off and and show it to the world because it, it looks really nice. It's nice and clean. It's not it's not a complex design, uh, and it looks really really good. Yeah, Hannah did a, a really charming job on on that engraving work yeah. on the, the dial, and and yeah, I'm I'm just uh, so impressed with, with her handiwork there. <clears throat> yeah, I, I you know I've spoken a little bit off off air about some of this. I. I'm not impressed with a lot of the hand engraving that's been done out there for, for dial work, especially with numbers and letters. It's really tough to do that well. And getting it absolutely bang on is really, really difficult. Yeah, her, her talent and, and years of experience truly shine through oh, yeah. on this piece. Yeah, yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah, the only ones that, let's say, are in the same ballpark at all to me are some of the pieces from let's say, George Daniels. And uh, some of the engraving done on, on Dufour's pieces. Hmm. Like this is just some some really next level hand yep. engraving that that she's done here. And of course, you know, old school Breguet timepieces. The <laughs> the engraving there again. You know, he was the the reigning king uh, for a reason as uh, sort of the, the high priest of of high horology. Mm-hmm. But, uh, speaking of of George Daniels and and Breguet, uh, your your wife has has brought. <laughs> of all people, has brought to our, our attention that uh, a particular book is coming back into print. Well, you say of all people, but the the problem is this poor woman, every year, my birthday and Christmas are very close together, and this poor woman is always trying to find something to buy me as a gift because, of course, I'm a horrible person to buy for. First off, if I see something that I like, I just buy it. And I don't wait for, you know, for birthdays and stuff like that. And then I've got really weird tastes and interests and things like that. So she's always looking for things that are, you know, that are good to to buy for me for for Christmas. And uh, so she was, you know, going around and looking for copies of of The Art of Breguet by George Daniels. Uh, she knows that I've been looking for a copy of it. And so she, she was trying to find one for me for potentially for Christmas. And uh, she found out that they're actually republishing it now. Don't get your hopes up too high. <laughs> they say that it's going to be published in May of 21. Daniel's books have not been well known for being published on a good timeline. <laughs> I mean, unless, you know, four years late is a good timeline. So I wouldn't hold my breath and expect it to actually be released in May of 21. 
But the nice thing is that it looks like there's going to be a reprint of that book, which is amazing to hear. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's consoling to know that there is at least something in the pipeline. <laughs> yeah. Because um, it's wild, the the trajectory on the, the prices for these books. I mean, oh, yeah. the same thing happened with watchmaking sure. before the, the fourth edition came out. And I'm fortunate enough to already own a copy of this book. It is a, sure. a, a great book, a great resource. And uh, I had lent it to you for, for a time <laughs> as well. And yeah. I was surprised, actually, by the number of times I, I went to go in and reference, reference something it. from yeah. it and realize, oh, yeah, Chris has it. Uh, yeah, and that's the thing. Having had it for months and being able to reference it, I desperately want my own copy of it. But it's it's amazing. I, I mean, it's been out of print, what, since 84 or something like that? Um, you know, some whatever whenever it was last printed, I think it was early 80s when it was last printed. And the the cost of it has gone up dramatically. And a lot of the copies that are at the quote-unquote more affordable end of the, the market are often ex libris, so they're marked. They've got, you know, they've got um, stamps and things like that from from the libraries they came from, or they're not in particularly good condition. And so it's like, uh, do I really want to buy this book? I mean, it's primarily a reference book for me, so if it's got stamps in it or whatever, it's not the end of the world. But at the same time, do I really want to spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars on a book that's, you know, that's not in great condition? This saves me all that trouble. I think the uh, the listing that I saw on Amazon was $165 Canadian. So, you know, significantly less in, in other currencies, which are more valuable. Um, but it's nice to see that this book is going to come out. I'll be curious to see what new information is in there, because typically when his books are reprinted, there's often a little bit of new information, either corrections or sometimes a new forward written by somebody with some new details in it. So I'll be curious to see what else is uh, is there. And hopefully some of the quality of the photographs, maybe they've, you know, they've been able to go back to the original source images and with better printer technology now, maybe we'll get some better quality images uh, from some of these prints as well. I would be very surprised if, if they're able to do that, but it's not beyond yeah, the realm of reason. Yeah. yeah. Because I believe, I believe Daniels took many of those photos so it may be that those, you know, those photos are still part of his collection. And so they may be able to reprint better quality versions of those photos, which would be amazing uh, to see, you know, to see better, better versions of some of those. I recall an anecdote he, he relayed once uh, about the, about the cover for, for watches, which is uh, another book he, mm -hmm. he had written. Um, he's very good at, you know, just, just taking those, those really, <laughs> really simple names. Like, yes. Yeah. You want a book on watches? George Daniels written. You want a book on watchmaking? George Daniels, yeah, he's written it. Yeah. The book on watchmaking, the book on watches. Uh, but uh, for the the cover of watches, he had, it's got to be two dozen, or at least a dozen watches on the cover of this book. All of them exceedingly rare, uh, very fine watches. Uh, all of them pocket watches. And uh, he set up for this shoot, I believe it was with uh, Cecil Sutton. and. They got it all set up, the camera set up, and then um, they had either just taken the photo or were about to take the photo. This is back in the day when you didn't just have a digital camera. Yeah. So it wasn't a, a trivial matter, setting up and, and taking a, a photo shoot, but they needed a break for lunch. So they just kind of left <laughs> where they had been set up and, and yeah. walked out with like literally hundreds of, of thousands of, of pounds in the monetary sense of watches just, just laying on, on the floor against a, a blue backdrop and you know, they, they go out and, and grab a bite and smoke a pipe and then, then mosey on back in and finish what they were doing yeah yeah you don't want to trip and fall in that room it's oh uh, no <laughs> it could be an expensive problem 
kind of reminds me of the, the rare time I've had an exceedingly expensive piece to, to work on on my bench and, and just walking it from, from my bench to the, the safer or what have you. Just uh, always a little bit of, of trepidation there, realizing that if I, I trip with this tray full of parts or, <laughs> you know, knock it on, on something that, uh, you yeah. know, there goes the, the entire some of my house and, and then some yeah. with, with some of these Protect Bleep and, and Rolex timepieces. Yeah. yeah. And some of them one of a kind too. Sure. Like I've, I've had the, the good fortune of handling some Patek Bleeps with very fine enamel work done mm-hmm. in the cases of, of these pocket watches. And, and that is literally one of a kind, irreplaceable. Like it, you, uh, yeah, yeah. you, you don't want to no, handle that the wrong way. <laughs> but that's exactly the sort of caliber that, that these watches were sitting in. And, yeah, in the art of Breguet, like I don't know if there has ever been anyone who has been in the position that Daniels was to handle as many of as many examples of Breguet's work as he did in his mm-hmm. lifetime. Mm-hmm. I, I think the only person today who's who's sort of on track to be able to to say the same kind of thing is somebody like uh, Peter with his uh, the Naked Watchmaker now. He's primarily working with modern watches and and being able to go into into manufacturers and being able to get a a good collection of more modern watches together. But he's he's one of the few people that I can think of who's actually in that same kind of position where he's a you know he's a, an experienced watchmaker and he's getting hands on time with these watches. Now he's he's obviously working with a larger number of brands and um, and seeing a larger variety of watches, but. Um, yeah, he's he's probably one of the few people. Maybe some of the people at uh, at a couple of the auction houses. Um, you know, some of the large auction houses are getting access to a large number of watches coming in. You know, coming through their their um, their studios and being able to see them up close. But yeah, there's there can't there's a hand obviously a handful of people that are that are getting this kind of access to this number of watches. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think that that. Peter would be able to hold a candle to the number of pieces that no, that exactly, handled. yeah, I know, I agree, and and I think that's why I say that that he's he's the only you know he's one of the few people that sort of can can approach that, uh, and even then, it's not mm. you know it's not the same, yeah, because because Daniels was consulting for an auction house, he was the the direct restorer, mm-hmm. the, the specialist that Browns was the family that owned Breguet mm-hmm. for a good portion of the twentieth century. He was their go-to guy yeah. to to work on these pieces and restore sure. them and bring them back to to good working order. So he he handled and worked on all of them. Yeah, it's a it's a weird situation. Hopefully, I really wish that we would see more of this, like more publishing of you know this kind of information. But who's going to do it? I mean, there's you know if it's somebody that's being employed by the brand, it's unlikely that they're allowed to. Unless the brand decides to publish that information themselves, and in a lot of those cases, those books are hard to find. They're very small numbers, inc- insanely expensive. Like Patek has one that they that they did, and that's it's just crazy expensive, brand new. It's nice to see this information getting out there, and it it really is the definitive book on Breguet and and his clocks and watches mm-hmm. and and uh, and in technical detail that you're just not going to get anywhere else. And the price tag on those Patek Philippe books are, are not without merit. These are very niche products, and the production yep. value on them is very high. For instance, in the their, their Star Caliber 2000 book, they actually have translucent or transparent pages that'll give you a nice breakdown layer right. by layer of the movement. 
So it's not just like some run-of-the-mill print job. There's uh, a lot of thought and attention to detail that goes into these books. Speaking from experience, also very good at uh, replacing a book should one be damaged in transit <laughs> to you. I, I received a, a book and, and that came a little dinged up uh, on one of the edges and, and given the, the princely sum I had paid for it, I did, I did reach out to them uh, and they uh, had, had no issue at, at all about sending out a, a replacement for it. Uh, but they are, are great resources and, and sure. the information in them is, is information you really aren't going to be able to get anywhere else. And uh, all all of this in a roundabout way saying the, the information in The Art of Breguet mm. um, is information that you, you really can't get anywhere else. And it is coming from a first-rate source. Yes. Uh, it really is a, a, a treasure of a book in, in the world of horology. Absolutely. And uh, speaking of, you know, Philippe's in the world of horology, so the, the kings of high horology, Philippe Dufour made some incredible news since we uh, last recorded an episode together. He doesn't have to worry about paying for his retirement anymore. <laughs> yes, that's right. Just one of his watches. Uh, watch zero of his uh, latest collection uh, of simplicities. It's a uh, a re-edition, so to speak. It's a 20th anniversary edition of, of the Simplicity by Philippe Dufour. It's a uh, a collection of just 21 pieces, and that's including piece zero, uh, which went up for auction at Phillips and uh, sold for $1.51 million for, for a time-only watch crafted yeah. by by a single watchmaker. Uh, that is not to say every component of the watch was crafted wholly by Philippe Dufour. He has a, a select number of artisans that, that he does work with who do help him with things like the case and, and the strap and the box and the but as far as the movement goes, that is yeah. that is all his handiwork at play. And uh, the exceptional level to which he finishes his timepieces and uh, the, the love that, that he pours into them, I, I think has certainly been well-received by, by the market of collectors out there. This, this went for several multiples over the, <laughs> the high estimate. Well, and, and when you consider that he had another piece that went recently, it was, was it a 34 millimeter version of, uh, of a simplicity that went for 600,000 mm -hmm. just a, a month or so ago. It's nice to see a living watchmaker earning, uh, this kind of money off of his pieces while he's still alive, while he's still making them. And he's the one who's making that money. It's not as though this is a collector who bought one of his watches 30 years ago and has sold it for $1.5 million, and the collector is the one who's earned the money off of it. In this case, it's actually the artist. Mm -hmm. It's the watchmaker himself, and he's he's benefiting from it, and it's great to see. It's You see a bit of this with the only watch auction, but there the money isn't going to the watchmaker. It's going to the uh, the charity. And that's great, and it's nice to see that the, you know, the industry is raising money like that. But you see these people who are individual watchmakers who have, you know, pieces like Recep has had pieces in there, and you know, Kari's had pieces in there, and and um, Jorn, and you know, you've, you've got all these piece, people who are selling watches for ridiculous sums of money in these in these auctions, and they're not really benefiting directly from it. Obviously, they're getting the the notoriety from it and whatnot, but they're not directly benefiting financially from it. It's great to see 
Philippe getting the, a the recognition which he's been getting for years, but b it's translating into some actual cash, and that is wonderful to see. There's hope for all of us that someday maybe we'll be able to actually, you know, be able to put up pieces at auction, brand new, and maybe this will be considered a, a viable way for us to sell our pieces. This is something that that artists in other fields have actually been able to do and have been able to do successfully. But the watch world has been, you know, a little bit more hesitant to do this kind of thing in the past. And I'm, I hope that this is the beginning of a trend for watchmakers to be able to release their pieces out into the world and be able to actually get a reasonable price for them. Mm-hmm. I think it's just Philippe Dufour and, and Francois Paul now who are, are living watchmakers who whose pieces have sold now for more than a million U.S. dollars. Yeah. I don't. I can't think of any others. I, I mean, I'm sure Bodilainen won't be far behind them, and, sure. and perhaps Smith. Uh, but that is uh, a remarkable testament to his work, and truthfully, to to the the decades of work that that he has has poured into mm-hmm. the craft. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and when you see the number of collectors that are buying pieces, uh, they're speculating and buying pieces, and they, you know, they'll throw it in a safe and hold onto it for a decade or whatever, and then sell it for you know, for multiples of what they paid for it. You know, and that's fine. That's a totally legitimate way of spending your money and investing your money if that's what you want to do. But at the end of the day, you know, people will talk about the crazy sums that, you know, that these watches will get at auction. And yeah, you know, I I don't really, you know, again, it's the it's the investors that are that are buying those watches that are benefiting from it. Here we're seeing the actual watchmaker, which is great. Love seeing this. Hope we see a lot more of it. And congratulations to Philippe. It's uh it's nice to see that that's uh, that's actually happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that other simplicity that you you mentioned that, that sold earlier this past autumn, uh, or I guess we're still in the autumn. We're covered in snow here. <laughs> um, it feels very much like winter, but we are technically still still in the autumn. So earlier this autumn, uh, that other simplicity uh, that did sell for you know, six hundred thousand plus dollars. Uh, yeah, Philippe didn't see see a penny of that. That, yeah. that all went to the the collector and the auction house. And to put that into some perspective. The original owner of that watch would have only paid about sixty thousand Swiss francs sure. for the piece at the time that they bought it. So that's like a ten x increase in return on investment. That's you know great investment. Obviously, they you know that that guy was smart in buying the watch and keeping it in the condition that it was in, and you know speculated. I mean, I guess speculation isn't really the right way of putting it. <laughs> Anybody who's buying a, a Dufour, you know, at that time. You knew that the watch was going to go up in value, so that wasn't really much of a speculation. But you know, right place, right time, having the money to be able to do it—that's that's great. But obviously, Philippe isn't seeing any of that money. And I've I've never bought one of Bob Kramer's knives, but as I understand it, this is sort of the approach that that he and uh, his assistant have, have taken to selling his wares. Is they will send out a notice that there will be a piece coming up, mm-hmm. and uh, basically you are on a list to participate in the auction for it. Yeah, and. It goes for whatever it goes for yeah. when it becomes available. Yeah, Bob Bob is, uh, has done this for a number of years now, and uh, you can purchase a uh, basically a membership to get in on the auctions. It's a reason, you know, it's five dollars or something like that. It's not it's not particularly expensive, uh, or maybe a little bit more than that, but it's not it's not onerous. And when the pieces become available, they go up for auction, and you can participate in that auction, and they go for what they go for. And his knives, you know, he's making kitchen knives, and they'll often go for tens of thousands of dollars. 
and uh, he's one of the few artists I've seen who's been able to do that. Mike Walker, uh, he's participated in the past in uh, Art Knife International, which was an invitation-only um, knife show. And again, that was set up in a way that where the you know the artists themselves were controlling the prices or controlling the auctions for it. The you know single day event with dedicated collectors who were there, you know, and had the money to spend on that kind of stuff. And I know Mike was one of the I think he was the first person to sell a, a knife at auction for more than more than hundred thousand dollars U.S. Like he, you know, again it was you know it's that that sort of artist controlled environment like that where where people have been able to do that. You get painters, you get occasionally, you know, art jewelers and things like that who who've been able to do this. But um, it's it's sort of working its way out of more of the art field, the high end art industry, and that's what these watches are. They're high end art, mm-hmm. and that's how they should be treated. They, you know, we should be. We already are in many ways. We're we're buying and selling them as investments, and you know, we should be treating the living artists the same way and actually giving them the the benefits of it. Philip shouldn't be doing that work and selling that watch for 60,000 francs, right? There's no reason to. The The market is interested enough in his products that they're willing to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars for them. He should be benefiting from that. Mm-hmm. And I find it interesting that uh, it is only going to be this first watch that is sold at that auction and that for the rest of the, the pieces, they've actually designated or, or laid out that there will only be one piece sold per country yeah and uh, he actually has um, a, a good friend of his handling all the the sales side mm-hmm. of this this for him i think it's really interesting and novel the the way that they're going about this and i'm interested to see how that in itself plays out if if we hear much of this at <laughs> all a lot of these deals are, are clearly going to be happening behind closed doors yeah, it's certainly a new era for for watchmakers. Yeah, it is an art form. It always has been an art form, mm. but it has now been elevated to art. Yeah, and we don't know what the prices are of those watches uh, that are going individually. And I think the reason that he wanted to do that was because he didn't want to have nineteen watches in Japan and one watch somewhere else in the world, uh, because that's probably what would have happened. His his watches are unbelievably popular in Japan. Out of the two hundred odd watches that he did for Simplicity originally. I think more than 150 of them are in Japan. They're like the vast majority of them are are in the hands of uh, Japanese collectors. And I think he wanted to avoid having that distribution, whether it's in Japan or Hong Kong or Singapore or wherever wherever it happened to be. He wanted to be able to say that, okay, you know, the people around the world had the option to be able to get this because there really are only 20 of them available. You know, for those of us who are in Canada, if you have the money, maybe, you know, maybe you're going to be on a list of a, of a half a dozen people who who are interested and have the money to uh, to buy it. I would actually be genuinely surprised if it is only half a dozen. I imagine it is. It, it might is be more, more than that. that. Yeah, it, it, it may be more than that. If And I don't even know if Canada is one of the countries on the list. It may not be. Right? It may, we, I don't know that we're necessarily uh, on the radar as a, as a great watch collecting nation. Uh, but obviously, America, you know, there's going to be, there's going to be one for that. There's going to be one for Japan. There's going to be one for Hong Kong. So uh, I'm curious to see if we ever hear any details about that. Uh, I don't know that we ever will because it's it's all going to be sort of private sales, but uh, it'll be interesting to see if we, we hear any details about it. Well, I do know of a small handful of collectors from Canada who have thrown their yeah. their name in the hat. Okay. Uh, it's basically just a, a Gmail address, actually, that you're, you're <laughs> supposed to write to. 
uh, just to to get your your name in the in the running for for one of the remaining twenty pieces. Actually, remaining nineteen now because Dufour is actually keeping one for for himself. Oh, good for him. And a few bits of uh, information about other podcasts and things that are going on right now. Uh, in the past, we've talked about the Time for a Pint virtual get-togethers, which were being hosted by Chris Mann and Matt, the watch nerd. Uh, we were on an episode back in the summer. There have been um, a few episodes of it published recently, uh, the last couple of weekends of November. Chris and Matt have already hosted two of them, and I think Chris was saying that there are at least two more uh, being published by the end of the year, and I think he has a, plans for a few more in the new year as well. If you were interested in the virtual get-togethers and you wanted to actually participate in them, then uh, those are going on. Go to the Time for a Pint website and uh, check them out. They're certainly worth uh, worth watching and, and getting getting in on the, the live chats and the, the live question and answer as well. Uh, that's kind of nice. So uh, those are starting to happen again. And then another person that we've talked about in the past, Seth Kennedy. He's an antiquarian horologist out of London. He's going to be in conversation with a Canadian uh, who has been doing interviews about um, the journeys that artists have been on and uh, the kind of work that they're doing. And that's coming up on December 9th. Uh, which is a Wednesday, and that's available as a Zoom event. Anybody can get into it. You don't have to be, uh, uh, you know, a member of anything or pay for anything. It's a free event. So uh, that's worth checking out. We'll put a link in the show notes to that as well. Yeah, certainly. Those are all great things to to check out. And uh, it is a, a treat to have time for a pint. Virtual get-togethers back up and, and running again. And if you have missed out on any of the past ones, they are all available to stream on, on YouTube as well. So I'll be sure to, to link up to their, their YouTube channel in the show notes as well. Mm-hmm. As this episode drops, uh, Cyber Monday will, will have just passed. And uh, we now have some some off-hours merch uh, available mm-hmm. for sale. Merch! Uh, and <laughs> <laughs> so if you fancy getting yourself a, an off-hours t-shirt or getting one of our little off-hours gears with the, the play symbol in it, uh, now is as good a time as ever because the service that we are, are using for the merch uh, they are actually having their their black friday cyber monday hoopla uh, going on so uh the t-shirts are usually 20 dollars, but they're down to 12 and uh, they will mm-hmm. remain at that price for the the basic tee until december the 7th at uh, 11 a.m eastern time so that's uh, our time here so it'll be uh december 7th at 4 p.m gmt that sale will have ended uh, so if you're you're listening to this and, and that time has not yet passed and you, you fancy getting yourself uh, a t-shirt or some stickers or a, or a hoodie, uh, have at it and, and make use of that uh, lowest price that uh, is likely to be on there. Thanks for listening to Off Hours. You can find detailed show notes at offhours.show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the show, follow us on Twitter at Off Hours. John can be found on Twitter at UnderTheLoop, and Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Silver underscore Hand. <laughs>